Amen. All right, uh, read with me now 2 Peter uh, verses 17 uh, to 22 from chapter 2. God's word says this, uh, these are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. So pause there. What is these? Uh, you'll recall last week and going through 2 Peter verse by verse, um, Keith preached on these uh, this concept of these false teachers and these false ideologies coming into the church. Uh, they're preaching uh, false beliefs. And so Peter, you know, very bluntly told us, hey, don't listen to false teachers. And so now we're picking up in, uh, with the second part of his thought. So these, he's referring to false teachers. For them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. Verse 18, for speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh, those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit and the sow after washing herself returns to wallow in the mire. And this is the word of the Lord. Uh, Keith mentioned this last week, and I'll say it again. Uh, this is times where I am grateful that here at North Bullet, we do expositional preaching where we pick a book of the Bible and go through verse by verse, because uh, I would have never woken up one day and said, I really want to preach about dogs eating their own vomit. Uh, and so we, this is the passage that we have been presented with, and so we are continuing on here. And so uh, we have a lot to unpack, and so we're going to go ahead and get right into it. Uh, when I was little, one of my favorite shows was Scooby-Doo. Has anyone ever seen Scooby-Doo? I'm sure most of us have heard Scooby-Doo before, but when I was little, I loved the show Scooby-Doo. If you don't know what the show's about, or you need a refresher, let me fill you in. Uh, it follows a group, the show of four teenagers and their talking dog, Scooby, uh, who call themselves the Mystery Gang. Uh, and they work as mystery solvers, strange hauntings, monster sightings, general mysteries at businesses and locations will have the owners uh, hire out the mystery gang to solve the problem or to solve the mystery. If you've seen the show, then you know that after investigating the area, after meeting with a lot of different people, and then there's this elaborate trap to catch the monster that always goes wrong, uh, they finally end up catching the monster. They finally end up catching the ghost. And then they utter the same phrase each and every episode. They say, now, let's see who's really under that mask. And then they rip off the mask to uncover the true identity of the monster or of the ghost. They rip off the mask and uncover the true identity. And so Scooby-Doo, each and every episode, is showing people their true selves. And this is precisely what I believe, silly example, but this is precisely what I believe Peter is doing for us in this passage. He is ripping off the mask of the false teachers to show who they really are. You will recall from last week, uh, Peter's calling out and dealing with false teachers in the area. And so he's addressing their true nature. Uh, Keith preached on it last week, Remember, you'll recall. Uh, and here in our passage, again, his argument's going to continue down. He's not done with them yet. Uh, and again, this passage is heavy. Uh, Peter does not pull punches 
uh, when it comes to these false teachers. His desire is to unmask the perceived beauty of false teachers to show us who's really under that mask. And if we peel off that mask, we will find hideous truths and empty promises that are offered up by false teachers. So our goal today, this morning, is this, to see who is really under that mask. And I'm going to warn you, again, like Keith did last week, this passage is heavy and it can be sad. And I'm going to spend the first parts of this sermon speaking plainly about false teachers and teachings. Uh, But hang with me for a little bit, uh, because then I'm going to help you see, by examining the horrors of these unmasked uh, teachers, the beauty and the fulfillment found in Jesus. And so, first, I want us to look at this. What is under the mask? What is under that mask? First and foremost, what is under there? Emptiness. We look at the false teachings of today and of Peter's day and age. uh, We find emptiness. Look again, verses 17 and 18. These are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. For them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. Okay, first and foremost, before we get into it, we need to understand uh, what these false teachers in Peter's time were preaching. Primarily, these teachers were preaching and practicing licentiousness. It's a big word. Licentiousness essentially means sexual freedom. Sleep with whoever you want, however you want, whenever you want. We see this primarily when Peter says in last week's passage in verse 10, those who indulge in lusts of defiling passion. And then here this morning in verse 18, they entice by sensual passions. From licentiousness stems countless other errors. Okay, this is a big deal. Countless other things stem from this. Because if I can sleep with whoever I want and I deserve and receive zero consequences, well, then what's stopping me from sinning in all other aspects of my life? What is stopping me from going out and doing whatever I want? Because I can do whatever I want. Uh, So we can say that the primary statement for the false teachers in Peter's day was this. You do you. You live your life however you want to live it. And if we're being honest, and if we've examined culture Uh, That is the exact same message that is being preached in our day and age from the secular world, is you live your life however you want to live it. Uh, The sexual freedom, the sexual revolution, uh, this is just a problem today as it was back then. This speaks to the timelessness of God's word, that the issues that Peter faced then, he wrote about it to help us combat it, and today we can still glean truth to battle and fight this fight. And so, again, make no mistake, this is what culture belts out from the top of its lungs. Uh, This was not just a problem in Peter's day, and it's no longer an issue. And again, don't get me wrong, it sounds good at face value. Let's be honest, I can do whatever I want and zero consequences? That sounds, let's just be honest, that sounds pretty great. Okay, I grew up with a lot of rules. I would love to live my life with no rules. And that is what culture says. But Peter plainly tells us this morning, that those messages that culture and society teach are empty promises. They fall short. There's nothing to them. Do not buy into the lie of culture. Peter calls these false teachers and their promises waterless springs. 
How insulting and sad it must be to be dying of thirst in the wilderness. And you see off in the distance a wellspring or an oasis of water. So you push forward with every single thing that you have inside of you, only to reach it and find dirt and sand. And you die thirsty. False teachers are waterless springs. Yet elsewhere in the Bible, we find Jesus say of himself in John chapter 4, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And in the end, in Revelation, Jesus, and he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. So which one do you want? Do you want dirt and sand or do you want water that you will never thirst again? What else does Peter call these false teachings? Uh, Mists driven by the storm. Uh, Think about this back in that day and age, primarily an agricultural society. So it would seem almost cruel to be going through a drought, watching your plants, your crops, your livestock wilt, shrivel, die, seeing rivers and lakes dried up, and then to look off in the distance and you see the storm clouds coming. It looks like rain. You leap for joy and excitement because you're not going to lose your livelihood. There's a storm coming. Uh, My crops are going to grow. I'm going to have water to drink. You see the rain coming. And then when the rain comes, the only thing that does show up is a slight mist that isn't even strong enough to wipe your face with. That cruel nothingness from the storm is sad. And this, again, is the promise of the false teachers. This is what society has to offer us. Nothing, in a sense. Their promises are empty. They fall flat. They yell out, be happy. You don't need religion. You don't need Jesus. Or, for those of us in this room that are saved, maybe the message has turned into, you can live how you want now that you have Jesus. Eat, drink, and live your life. Jesus loves you. If you don't sin, then Jesus died for nothing. We've all heard something to this effect. But if we look at the people, let's be honest here, if we look at the people who are living this kind of lifestyle, who call themselves Christians and live life however they want to live, uh, they are unfulfilled, living lives contrary to the gospel. And that does not come from a judgmental higher than you position. But when I examine God's word and when I examine the life of many people in this world, myself included, at times there is a discrepancy between the two. And the people and the Christians, my brothers and sisters who I see living this life, are not fulfilled. Have you met someone like this who lives in unrepentant sin? They're miserable and they're pitiful and worst of all, blind. They are blind to it. And Peter is telling us today, God, through Peter, is telling us today, don't buy into these lies. Don't buy into the promises that these teachers and their followers are having. All you're going to find is emptiness. It's not going to last. Any happiness that you would receive, and I use that word loosely, is fleeting, gone in a moment. So now we want to examine who is under the mask. So we looked at, okay, so what is under the mask? Emptiness. Who is really under the mask then? We find verse 19, slaves. 
They promised them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption for whatever comes or whatever overcomes a person to that he is enslaved. Now, again, as we pull off the mask, rather than finding an individual who is liberated and freed, as our culture says that they are, we find nothing more than a slave to lusts and desires shackled in unlocked handcuffs. They can leave whatever they want but they choose not to. These individuals who preach happiness and to follow after your own pleasures are a slave to their own pleasures. They're a slave to themselves. Their sins and wicked desires keep them bound. And yet they possess the foolishness to say that they are the liberated and free ones. And therefore you and me are closed-minded fools to say otherwise. No discipline, no restraint, no morals, And yet these teachers and their followers claim to have the moral superiority over God's people. So I want to give you an example of what this looks like in real life. Because you'd be like, yeah, I agree with you, but I I don't really see it that way. This is an example of what it looks like played out. Uh, In the book, Real Marriage, a quote and a reference to an interview is listed uh, in the book. And so I want to give that to you here. Those who fail to heed the wise warnings of Scripture run the risk of ending up like the musician John Mayer. Here is a segment of his Playboy interview that is admittedly disturbing, but serves as an honest warning. He says this, Internet pornography has absolutely changed my generation's expectations. This is my problem now. Rather than meeting somebody new, I would rather go home and replay the amazing experiences I've already had. What that explains is that I am more comfortable in my imagination than I am in actual human discovery. He has become, John Mayer has become a slave to his passions so much that the real and better thing is unattractive to him. He doesn't want to meet anybody. He wants to stay at home with his pornography. Guys, may we never get to the point where we sit in the corner eating moldy bread while the marriage supper of the Lamb, the banquet between Christ and His church, goes on right in front of us. The real and better thing is there. Why must we enslave ourselves to cheap knockoffs, the Dollar General version of it? Friends, look at me. Being a Christian is hard. Being a Christian is difficult, and it can appear to be confusing. You can... Uh, feel abandoned. You might feel cut off, stricken, lost at sea, whatever it may be, but we must never give in to the enslaving promises of the modern world. And I know it's cliche in the church to be like, oh, don't look at culture. And we might have this horrible view of culture, but we have to set ourselves apart from it. We are a select, separated people of God. We have to be informed about what the culture believes and represents and what they preach and practice so that we may be a light to these people. The false teachers don't want us to have the better thing. They want us to continue to feel abandoned, cut off, and stricken. Do whatever you want, guys, but whatever you want better be in line with what I want. Otherwise, you're a horrible person. This is what happens. And so when we feel abandoned, when we feel in pain, confused, whatever it may be, we must not run to culture or run to answers in culture. We must double down in God's word. Paul tells us in Romans, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. 
And elsewhere, he writes this. These are my two favorite verses. If I were to lose the whole Bible and keep two verses, these are the two verses I would keep. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. The false teachers of today and yesterday cry out with licentious lips. Just open the door. It'll be so much easier for you. They come knocking at our heart's door in moments of difficulty and trial. The easy way out to just sin is always knocking on our heart's door saying, just let me in. It'll be easier and we can be happy for a little while. We must not open the door. Christian, hold out for a little bit longer. Cry out to God a little bit more because after sin's knocking comes another knock. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Jesus knocks at our heart's door. That's the one we want to let into our hearts. Do not let the false teachings of the modern day and of culture, do not let this idea of freedom let you open the door for them. Hold out for the knocking of Jesus. It's simple. Rip the mask off of culture. Rip the mask off. See who's really under there and you will find people who are nothing more than slaves to their own sinful passions and desires. We find this all over the world with people whose entire identity is wrapped up in what they believe, who they are, and to a degree that's good. As Christians, our identity and who we are should be wrapped up in the gospel. But we see this idea of freedom so much so in the culture, in the secular world, where they are slaves and all they can do, think, dress, act, is this one way and is so contrary to the gospel. And so today we're going to look at Peter's conclusion for these false teachers. Look again with verses 20, 21, and 22. For if, after they have escaped uh, the defilements of the world, through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become far worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit, and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. As Peter concludes this section on false teachers, he wants to leave us with an understanding about who they are, what is their being, what is going to happen to the false teachers. We've seen what they believe and who they are, but what's going to happen to these false teachers? And he puts it plainly for us. They're worse off than when they were before. They've lost the ability to plead ignorance because they've been exposed to God's word and they have rejected it and lived a life contrary to those instructions. Parents and grandparents in the room, how much more trouble are your little ones in when they break a rule you explicitly told them not to break? Yes, they might get in trouble for doing something they shouldn't have done, but they might not have known about it, or maybe you did not have time to explain that rule to them. There's still consequence there. But how much more consequence and severity is there when, hey, I explicitly told you not to do this, and you went and did it. I never did that as a child. That's a lie. I did that a lot as a child. My poor mother. Um, I got spanked quite often because I would break rules. My mom and dad would sit me down and say, don't 
do this. Even the point of like, why are you still doing this? This that is how oftentimes we can be viewed from God. God's saying, why are you doing it? Don't keep doing this. But the false teachers are doing the same thing and not repenting. They've been exposed to God's word and they've run away. And Peter says, because they know the truth and they know what they're not supposed to do and don't feel sorry about the way they live now, it's worse off for them. This is what Peter is ending for the false teachers. No doubt, Peter's recalling Jesus' parable of the sowers when he mentions these very types of people. In the Gospel of Mark, which we believe is uh, Peter's account of Jesus' life, we see this. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it and yielded no grain. And there are others, the, uh, and there are others that are one sown among thorns. And then Jesus, uh, a few verses later, it begins to explain the parable. And then he gets to this section. They are those who hear the word, but care for the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word and it proves unfruitful. These are the false teachers. They've been exposed to God's word. I don't believe that these are Christians who have abandoned the faith, but I believe rather first John that they are people who have put on the appearance of righteousness and then walked away so that it may be shown that they were never a part of us in the first place, but they've been exposed to God's word. They've been exposed to the truth, pretended to accept it, maybe even pretending enough to fool themselves that they have accepted it. And then difficulties in the world's uh, luster and the promised freedom of these other false teachers happen, and then they leave to become a part of that. That is who we're dealing with. They've, they've nibbled a little bit on God's word, but they have rejected it despite knowing and being exposed to the truth. And so we see in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus say this, I tell you on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word that they speak. So how much worse judgment is on people, false teachers and culture today that preaches licentious behavior, but has been exposed to the truth. Their words are all the more lofty and all the more condemning because they know the truth. Their judgment is worse off. That is not a judgment I desire to be a part of. The message of culture today and of these people will be severe. The punishment on them will be severe. Their message will not go unpunished. Christians in the room, the message of culture, the message of licentiousness and freedom, what have you, will not win over God's word. We need not to fear. But there is urgency that we should preach the gospel to people who are falling into this lifestyle and preaching it to our loved ones who might be backsliding a little bit and preaching to ourselves when sin encroaches on our hearts. But at the end of the day, the message of culture will not prevail over God's people and its word. So now for the good stuff, an inward look at us. What does this do for us? So where we'll remain for the rest of the time today is just looking at ourselves, because I would venture to say that the bulk of us in this room, not necessarily everyone, but the bulk of us in this room are aware of the dangers of the message of the world and of false teachers out there. It comes no surprise to the seasoned believer that culture is going one way and the church is not going necessarily another way, but is standing firm on the truth and culture is departing. It comes as no surprise. We've even seen this the past you know, 20 so years, culture continuously, rapidly going one way away from the church. 
But a he- so a healthy reminder and a cautious warning benefits everybody in the room, regardless of how new or old we are in the faith. Because we could easily just be like, well, yeah, in a sense, I know not to play in the street. So why does saying don't play in the street benefit me? Uh, Nate, I know not to go to culture for answers. I know not to believe the lies of culture. So why would I, you know, receive any of this? This isn't new news. Look at us personally, inwardly, and especially as we look again at verse 19, we're going to look at a crucial point then that is going to benefit us as believers as we've looked at the culture. Look again at verse 19. They promised them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. And so our final truth this morning is that we are all slaves. Everyone in this room are slaves. We've already seen the true nature of these false teachers, that in reality, they're nothing more than slaves. Okay, we've already spent some time talking about that. But if we examine scripture in other parts, we bear witness to a whole other type of slave. Paul says in Romans, what then? Are we to sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness." I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time for the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death, but now you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God. The fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. Okay, let me give you the Nate Stevens translation of this. You were once dead in your sins and miserable, and all you could reap and sow was death and misery, and now you've accepted Jesus, and you are slaves of righteousness. All you can do is serve and honor God, and that leads to eternal life. What good, Paul says, were you getting living this type of lifestyle? living a life of licentiousness, living a life contrary to the church and to Jesus. What good were you getting out of it? Nothing. So now you've accepted God. Present yourself as slaves to God. You have deserved so much worse and have been given grace and mercy. So be slaves of righteousness that leads then the fruit of that to sanctification at its end, eternal life. That is what Paul is saying. Today in this room then, We are called into Christ's finished work, thus becoming slaves of God. Peter said here in 19, anything that overcomes a person, he is enslaved to. I don't know about you, but the grace and mercy of Jesus has overtaken me. That all I can do is smile when I think about my Lord and Savior. That all I can think about is serving him. That every time I don't serve him, I feel conviction in my soul. Jesus has overtaken me. Logically, I have become a slave to Jesus. 
And this slavery is not painful and not anguishing. Rather, in the slavery of Christ, we find everlasting peace and everlasting joy. It is through this slavery with God that Ezra cries out, He is good. His love towards Israel endures forever. It is this very slavery that Hannah cries out, My heart exalts in the Lord, and my horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. It is this slavery that Mary cries out, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in my God and my Savior. And it is this slavery to God that Paul cries out again in Romans, Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. My dear friends, let us fall at the feet of God as his slaves, his loyal slaves. Let us not escape from this servitude, but walk into it with joyful singing and praises. That is the life that I want to live. Friends, enter into the slavery of righteousness of our Lord, and you will have in you the most freeing experience of your soul that could ever be possessed, the freedom to enjoy the world as God intended for you to do so. You see, the world cries out. These false teachers cry out, do what makes you happy. Do whatever makes you happy. But friends, what if, if I could be real, what if God is committed more to your happiness than God or than you are? What if God in his infinite wisdom and power knows what will bring you happiness and therefore leads you into obedience, into slavery to him for his glory and your benefit? What if God is more committed to your happiness than you are? That's the kind of servitude I want to be a part of. That's the level of joy I hope to possess and the joy I hope each and every one of you can possess as well. Do you want that type of work and that type of slavery? Or do you want the type of slavery of the false prophets who Peter says, a dog returns to its vomit? The proverb is true. They are dogs returning to vomit. Okay, I don't know about you personally, I don't want anything to do with vomit. I am not ready to be a father. I, vomit, fluid, everything, disgusting. A dear mentor of mine, we've met him a couple times, a long time ago, named Gabe Gibbets. His family had twins, and I was holding his infant son, and he spit up on me, and I went, nope, right back to mama. I said, that is all yours. I can't handle vomit. I don't want to be like that. We used to have this super fat dog when I was little named Abby. She's a black lab, and she, sure enough, would eat her own vomit. But this dog loved to lick people and loved to give kisses. I remember one time I was watching a TV show, probably Scooby-Doo, and she was licking my hand, uh, and then I was watching the show. The show ended, and I looked down, and she was still licking my hand. I was like, oh, my gosh. So I washed my hands, but I was like, oh, she loves me. Uh, well, we knew that this dog liked to lick people and liked to kiss people. 
And so one time I'm out in the backyard and I see her sure enough eating her own vomit and then looks at me and runs to me and I ran away. I don't want anything to do with a dog returning to its own vomit. May that metaphor apply in reality. Let us not partake in those who go back to their own vomit. It is disgusting. It is repulsive. We should be much like our brother Joseph in Genesis who flees from a licentious woman begging to sleep with him while her husband is away. He leaves the dog returning to the vomit. May that not be us. May we not be viewed as a dog returning to its vomit. Gotta stop saying vomit. Uh, (laughs) I'm gonna say it a couple more times. Uh, We don't wanna be like that. And for those of us who are saved in this room, we don't wanna be like that again. Because we were, in our sins, apart from Christ, nothing more than slaves. Nothing more like dogs who feast on their own vomit like it's Thanksgiving dinner. But now we have, through the finished work of Jesus, the ability to enter into a slavery of righteousness, of rest, of peace and joy everlasting. Friends in this room today, all of us are slaves, slaves to God or slaves to the false prophets of culture Today, every single one of you in here is a slave to something. All of us, friends, are slaves. One kills and one saves. 